Well, we continue uh, into the fall sermon series, which will be the first part. Uh, we're following kind of this book, The Believe, and I know several of you have ordered those and they're here and you can pick them up on the table there. If you'd like to get this, it can be ordered on Amazon, delivered to your home, christianbook.com. But it helps us focus on key truths, is what we're going to do in the fall, key truths of an authentically biblical Christian faith and what it means to live those out. Last week we looked at the question, who is God? Today we want to ask, what, does, what is this God like? What does that mean for us? So we're thinking like Jesus is our goal, core truths of our faith. And the text that was included in our, your reading for the week and that I'll be looking at today is from Psalm 139. It's a beautiful expression of David's love and relationship with the living Lord God. And I'll d delve into that and what it means. But I'm going to ask at this moment, out of reverence for the Word of God, if you're able, stand with me and hear as I read from the first portion of Psalm 139. This is a Psalm of David. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light and become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Oh Lord, our God and Father, how we thank you for your majestic greatness. Uh, David certainly recognizes that in this psalm. And yet us hold together as well this amazing truth that you are an intimate, a personal God who knows not simply about us or about humanity, but who knows each one of us deeply, personally, intimately. 
Thank you that as David reflected on that and recorded it, so your Holy Spirit that gave him that insight and guided him in those words, that same Holy Spirit preserved these texts across centuries so that now the discovery of David might begin to shape our hearts and minds of your greatness and your closeness. Help us to know you as you have revealed yourself, to let the truth about you shape who we are. Guard your people from my own confusion and brokenness. Instead, make Jesus clear and compelling. Thank you for our hope. We make our prayer in his mighty name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Well, I ended last Sunday with uh, a relationship, a friendship I had, um, a person who misunderstood who God was. And because they had a misunderstanding about God, it led to a misunderstanding about their life and how to live it. And eventually, misunderstanding cascading to misunderstanding led to brokenness in this friend's family. It's a painful picture of how a false understanding of God can lead to a false understanding of oneself and have all kinds of consequences. Remember, this person said, well, you know how God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He kind of charted out the heresy of subordinationism because you see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God as he's revealed himself, co-equal, co-eternal. And so it's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, husband, wife, children. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, husband, wife, children brought together in Him. So you see, what we take to be true about God will have major impact on what we take to be true about being a human. We saw that last week from the God side of that relationship. This week I want to look at the human side. Remember, Our understanding of God and our understanding of humanity are interconnected. Get one wrong, it has impact on the other. But this morning, I wanted to focus on Psalm 139. It's a psalm where David, and remember David's life. He was a warrior. We first see him with uh, Goliath. He was a psalmist. I like to think guitarist, but he's a musician who composed artistic worship of God. He was an adulterer. And he was a king. And he tells us in this psalm that the great and majestic God, the God who is and has made himself known, also knew David and would yearn to know us on a deep and profoundly personal level. You know me, the scripture says. And this psalm amazingly begins with a statement And it ends with this statement of God's knowledge of us. You have searched me, Lord, and know me, it says in verse 1. There just before the end, verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Now, this is an interesting and important word. I'll just point to some things in passing. It's used 947 times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew root that's a part of this. 
And it speaks of that kind of knowledge and understanding, always based in a relationship. So much so that, let me read to you from the use of this word in Genesis 4.1. I'll be reading the English Standard Version. And they translate it like this. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she became pregnant. Now I don't have any charts or diagrams or pictures. But let me suggest to you, knowledge in the Bible is more than just a factoid in our head. It's always relational. It's always a truth that brings us into relationship, and it always brings and leads to life. This is a profound image that our knowledge of God, that God's knowledge of us might be comparable in ways that the coming together of a husband and wife and the giving of life. This is a profound insight, two things in particular. It shows us what it means to know and to be known by God, to be in relationship, not with spirituality in the generic form, but with the Lord as revealed in the scripture. But it also gives us insight into God's created intention for human sexuality. Part of the good news we have for a confused and hurting world is that human sexuality was given for far more than simply my personal pleasure and self-expression. That if you reduce it to that and that alone, you'll never experience the fullness of what God has for people there. It's a deep and a passionate sharing of life that brings life. That's what it means to know and to be known. David says, this is how God has pursued me and who loves me. Another thing really stood out for me in this psalm. Many times um, the psalms begin with a heading that placed them into a moment of David's life. David wrote, as best we can tell, about 73 of the 150 psalms. He wrote roughly half of the psalms that we have. Sometimes, again, it's placed in his life. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. Verse 2 says, cleanse me from my sin. Well, that psalm states that it grew out of David coming to grips with a series of events that included adultery and murder of a good friend. Living as a sinner and seeing that played out, David had to pursue God and repent. What's interesting is that this psalm doesn't place it in the life of David. Why is that? Wouldn't you like to know what was going on in David's life when he wrote this, when he meditated on this knowledge? You know what I would suggest you consider with this? It doesn't matter what moment in David's life he wrote this because the knowledge that God pursues with his people is always in play. When David was the warrior just starting off, the Lord knew him and loved him. When David was the new king, the Lord knew him and tested his heart. When David double-crossed a friend, slept with his wife and ended up murdering a friend, that didn't catch God by surprise. He knew David. So you see, this psalm is true always, and it's true in every circumstance. 
as I had to grow in my own life, learning to navigate the pathways of my heart, decades the journey has been. I had to come to a point where I realized when I go to the Lord with confession of my brokenness, he welcomes me having known of my sin. That was completely different than the shame of, oh no, I've been caught. Do you see the difference there? He knows me and he loves me. His love calls me to more than I ever would be myself. What good news that is. So you see friends, this lives out the great truth we confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. We say in the Heidelberg Catechism that my life is not my own and belongs to God. And yet I think more than ever before in my lifetime, we're living in a time, in a place, among a people who want to say, no, my life is my own. As I read and watch and listen to people in the world around me, increasingly I observe a view of life that scholars call expressive individualism. It's about me, I determine truth, and I need to be free to express it anyway. In a phrase, it's about me, life and reality are mine. It's kind of the anti-Heidelberg perspective on life, if you will. My life is not my own among a people who live as if my life is my own. And friends, we breathe this in, it affects us. In one sense, I see in each of our lives the struggle between I am not my own and I want to be my own. It takes place right here. It's not just out there. As I've listened, I can see five specific ways that people often try to live life as if it was theirs. Oftentimes, for church people, it's this sense that God purposefully put me in charge of aspects of my life. He said, you do this and carry it on. Church people with this perspective of owning their own life often are big on obedience. Here's what the Bible says, you'd better do it. It's mine, my life is, because God set things up that way. And obedience becomes the expression of that. More often than not, even our obedience becomes an expression of who I am and what I should do. As if God has delegated to us a portion of life that's our responsibility. Another way, and I've tried to focus these on ways that it gets lived out inside the walls of the church. We'll say that the Lord is only concerned with bigger things. Oh yes, God is sovereign and he takes care of the big things, but he's left the little things to me. Again, I often see people, this will hamstring a prayer life. Maybe God has just left this to me and I'd better take care of it. Would God be interested in the little things of my life? He must be so much more committed to the important things, the big things, the things other than me. That's not what David says in this psalm. When I go out, when I come in, should I rise? Should I be depressed? In all these things, the Lord knows, and he walks with us. Sometimes there's a very different vision of God. We say that the Lord doesn't care. 
Often this is from an experience of what we take to be undeserved pain. Oh, I can't believe God did that. I didn't deserve that. God doesn't care. You see how you take step upon step upon step and then you find yourself. Does God not care? This Psalm, the witness of the scripture says, whatever answer you come up with for why you're suffering or why a friend or family member is suffering, the answer can never be, if you look at the scripture, that God doesn't care. So when you arrive there, it's time to step back and say, wait a minute, God knows me. He knew me before I knew myself. While I was yet a sinner, Christ Jesus died for me. He knows me and he cares. My life is not my own. Even in those moments, it feels like it. Folks will begin to think, well, you know, I'm facing something and the Lord is unable to change this. I want to particularly highlight a way that we do that. We think it's because of something that I have done. Many times as I sit down with people, they'll feel hamstrung in their heart because of a particular sin. They're crippled by a, a besetting sin. The Puritans understood this powerfully, that there will be times, particularly at the level of our heart, we continue to wrestle with a pride, with a self-servingness. It expresses itself different ways, but this besetting sin that we carry like a thorn in the flesh through life. I've sat with people who've served in combat. I've done or seen more than God could ever forgive. I want to suggest to you that's saying in a way, my life is mine and I messed it up. David, for all the sin he would commit, would never stop being known by God. Do we really believe like David did that the days of his life were already written? Could that include? God's knowledge of us is too wonderful. Finally, a way we think our life is our own because there is no God. I mentioned this morning this sense I've had over the past several days of the unrelenting march of heartache through my own life, through our life as a congregation. There's been moments it's been so hard. That's real, but imagine how hard it is to be a consistent atheist. At first, to deny that God exists, it's easy to settle that as a start, but to live it out over time? Friends, if the unrelenting march of heartache is hard, imagine the unrelenting march of silence in a broken world. That's all the atheist can hear when they look at the world. Silence, meaninglessness. It's hard to live that out consistently. And people find it again and again that the silence of an empty universe doesn't give us any comfort in our brokenness or sadness. To say that life is my own eventually becomes a burden, an oppression. 
I would connect it. You've got to be careful about oversimplifying cause and effect and all these things. But I've connected in my own sense of listening to folks as we step away from some uh, Christian sensibility in our culture, there's a rise of depression. There's a rise of deaths of despair. When the, your worldview gives you despair, death will follow. Friends, I can name all sorts of problems connected with church and church life. I've been in this business, if you will, for 40 years. Have I got some stories? About a third of them are what I've done. So I get it. We can name problems connected with the church and church life, but atheism may distance you from those problems, but it doesn't solve them, you see? It raises a whole new list of challenges and heartaches whole new list of challenges and heartaches. De-churching fixes one set of problems, but leaving the church doesn't fix the problem of our human nature. You take that with you to the next place in your life. It's amazing if we'll stop and think how many times we live our lives with what I would call a functional atheism. I'll say the Heidelberg Catechism with you, Pastor, but when the chips are down, I live as if there is no God. The good news in that, if you begin to hear that ringing in your heart, is that Jesus invites you to take a step closer to him. Hear one who knows you and loves you. Because you see, part of the reality of this world in which we live is that we are simply not free to make the life that you choose. Now. I've done ministry among people who are, uh, what shall we say, much more under-resourced than we are here in Holland. And among under-resourced people, poor folk, they understand that they can't make any choice they want and live that life. They're limited by economics. But we are limited by more than economics when it comes to choosing whatever life we want. Life just doesn't work that way. The gospel in this is that we have been called to live into the life that we were created, redeemed, and empowered for. That path, saying yes to a calling from a God who knows us and loves us, that path will lead to flourishing and fulfillment. The Lord created us. And he redeemed us. That's what Jesus did at the cross. And now by the Holy Spirit, he empowers us. Let's say you singular, you, created, empowered, redeemed to be a part of what God is at work doing in the world. He hadn't redeemed you to be an observer or simply an underwriter of God's work. He's called you to be a part of it. It's not unusual to ask a young person, what do you want to do or be when you grow up? The 40-year-old says, a fireman, a football player. And hopefully by their fifth year in college, a student has a better, more formed idea about what life could hold for them. But I want to suggest to you, the question we ought to ask ourselves and our families is not so much what do you want to be or do as this, what has the loving God redeemed you for? What is the calling on your life? We often think of calling as our religious experience for pastors. Oh, I've been called to the ministry. 
Hopefully most pastors in pulpits were called to the ministry. But I want to suggest to you, we need to step back and have this vision about our marriages. Have you been called into this relationship? That's what a covenant binds and seals. We ought to think about this with regard to our professions. I'm thankful I grew up in a family where my dad had a deep sense that the God who had saved him had called him to be an engineer. Part of his calling and praise of God was getting reliable, best price natural gas to factories and homes so folks can work and feed their kids and keep them warm. That's a calling under the sovereign grace of God. And so the question is not so much being free to choose what I want to be, as it is hearing the voice of a shepherd who would call us into what he created and redeemed and empowered us for. I like to talk about this as living into the Lord's purpose for your life, because it's into, it's in process, it takes time. There will be moments when you're living into the Lord's calling on your life and his purpose that you'll need to affirm and trust that there is a purpose. People by my age have learned from time to time that you will be living in God's purpose and not understanding it, perhaps not even liking it. There are seasons of my life where when I was going through them, I was thinking, what is going on? That's a cleaned up translation of what was actually going through my heart. I can now look back at them and begin to see, oh, wait a minute, God was at work in this way. Even those experiences where I still remember this much pain and now see only this much benefit, God calls us to trust him. He who knows us, he who would die for us, that's what the cross is for. He's a God who can be trusted even beyond my understanding. We discover this purpose uh, along the way, along the journey. It may change with seasons. It may uh, be altered with circumstances in our culture or community. But step by step to live in response to a God who knows me, who created me, who loves me in the midst of that knowledge. And we live into this when we realize it is the Lord who will complete it. I am confident Paul would write from prison. I'm confident this very thing that he who began a good work shall complete it. Sometimes I'm not sure what that completion will look like. I take it that it will be more kindness, more gentleness, more self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But some of the decisions I face this week, who knows? But God will have that for me. You see, friends, living into God's purpose for your life means this, that the God who makes himself known shows us who and what we are and then cultivates that to fruition. It is God who is at work. It is his glory and the benefit of others that are the expression of that. We see it. So God has a purpose. And friends, I won't spend a lot of time on this truth, but the second thing it means is that you are never abandoned to the circumstances of your life. There are moments where the tunnel of your circumstances will look dark and cold, and they will be but you are not abandoned. But I don't hear anything, Pastor. 
You are not abandoned. But I don't feel anything, Pastor. But you are not abandoned. But I deserve to be abandoned. But you are not. That's the gospel. Not that your feelings are true. They come and go. Not that you don't deserve something different. See, we talk about the calculus of grace. The world says one and one is two. Grace says one plus one is you are loved. Live out of that love. It's a marvelous thing, friends. We have a purpose for which we are known and called into. We are never abandoned even when every other sensibility would say we are, we're called into all that God has for us. Um, A good place for you to dig further. It's interesting how different people respond to the call on their life. Some will follow the path of Jonah. You remember Jonah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Every time God calls him, he goes the other way. God just used his going the other way to work in his life. I didn't, it's as if God would say, you know, you don't have to live in the belly of a fish for three days, but you want to run, you'll learn this about me. I can make big fish. You can survive and be barfed up onto the beach. That's one way. The other way, and this is a character that I love, Ananias in uh, Acts chapter 9. Remember, Paul is murdering the church, persecuting And God calls Ananias to go to Paul and to pray for him. And you read Ananias going, "Uh, Lord, this guy is killing your people. Ananias heard the Lord say, I know, go and pray. And because of that, Ananias is the one who got to lay hands on what looked like a blind Paul and something like scales fell off of his eyes, the scripture says. And from that moment on, the gospel would begin to move to every tribe and tongue and nation. If you want to follow God, if you want to live into that calling, it may include some harrowing moments, but it'll be an adventure. You'll never be alone. I want to close by reflecting on two characters from the 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire. It's a movie about historical realities, but I don't think that every word of dialogue is historically verifiable. But there's two characters in that movie. The one who's the main character, Eric Liddell, Scotsman, who could run like the wind. And before he went off to the mission field, he actually was on the United Kingdom Olympic team, ran in the Olympics. And you'll remember the story. Because of his faith, he refused to run on Sabbath. He was unable to enter his best event, but he ran in another event, which is not his best, and he won. And we always love the winner, don't we? But there's something about Eric Liddell that we need to look at today particularly when we look in comparison to the, another character. He's a little more minor. His name is Harold Abrahams. Both of these guys really exist, and the main outline of their story is true. Harold grew up Jewish in the United Kingdom, and he ran out of resentment to resist anti-Semitism and to show them he could represent the nation. He too won. 
But there's a line where Harold Abrahams in this movie says, in just a few hours before his final Olympic race, I will raise my eyes and I'll look down that character. It's four feet wide, 100 meters. And I will have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. What a weight. Even when you're successful, what a weight. Imagine bearing that burden and coming in second. There's a moment where Eric Liddell is speaking to what would be a fiance and he says, yes, I'm going to the mission field, but now I need to run. And he says this, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure as if God created me for this moment, for this expression, for this very thing. He said that not knowing that to follow this calling would have him speaking to the powers that be and saying, no, Sunday is God's day, I will not run. It would later mean he would stay in China as a missionary. He'd be taken to a Japanese prison camp and he would live out his calling under the midst of that, eventually dying. But when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Liddell did not say, when I run, I see who I am. Because his eyes were on God, God showed him more of who he was and Eric Liddell pursued that. That's what it means to live in relationship with a personal God, to seek him, to hear his voice, to stumble forward knowing you are known and loved and will never be abandoned. Friends, that's good news. Jesus went to the cross, was raised so that you and I might live like that. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace in Jesus' name. I thank you that you are more than just a distant idea, a long-held tradition, or a compelling philosophical commitment, but that you know us. You know us better than ourselves. You know the mistakes and bad choices that are yet in our future. And yet, you have loved us. We look at the cross and see the price you were willing to pay to rescue us, even knowing us better than we know ourselves. Father, we thank you for that. I pray that every person within the sound of my voice might hear as well that still small voice that invites them to come and to enter in to take a step in response to God's grace that we might say, when I serve, when I fill in the blank for you, when I do that, I feel his pleasure. Thank you for your goodness, your marvelous grace. Be with us this day and give us great hope, kindness to share, hope to live in. Fill us, we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people sit together. Amen. Amen.